WNYC Studios is supported by The Uncertain Hour, a podcast from Marketplace. The new season is here to help you make sense of this complicated economic moment, diving into the origins of quarantine, unemployment, and how the social safety net came to have so many holes. Subscribe to The Uncertain Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today we're live from the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey, where I sat down recently with musician, poet, and artist, Patti Smith. Thank you for coming. We're here at, uh, at uh, the Mayo. My guest for the show this evening is somebody who is, you know, a very uh, unique person in the world of music. Uh, you know, a, a true poet, performance artist. I mean, so many things you could apply to her, but I think most people know her as a, as a great and kind of iconic musician. So please join me in welcoming Patti Smith. We were talking backstage about how I wonder what it would be like if you or, and I were kind of starting in our respective businesses now. Like, do you think that you're of your time and you came right when you should have come? And, and if you were to come onto the scene now with what you think the music scene is like now, well, what would you do? I forgot to ask at what age, like my age I came on now? Oh God, no, no. <laughs> Well, this applies to me, too. No, 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 no. I'd be a greeter at a Vegas hotel if I was starting at my age. I Actually, I have no idea because I didn't really come into the music business. I was, I came, I wound up in music by mistake. I'm not really a musician. I didn't really want to be a musician or a singer. I just wanted to, I wanted to be a poet and a writer, and it was accidental, so... Would it accidentally happen now? I don't think so. I think I would have to be more focused on what I wanted, but also because I'm so untechnological and uh, things, I mean, I'm just not really suited for right now, so uh, probably I would have to be like a physicist. You'd be a driver, you'd I drive have the to... band, you'd be the person that drove the band to the gig. Oh, you don't even drive, No, right? I don't know how to drive, so I couldn't do that. <laughs> It's true. She doesn't have a license. I said, you ever live in L.A.? She said, no, I don't swim and I don't drive. That's true. But if you came in now, you'd be a scientist, you said? Well, I, I, I don't know what I would be, but I, I don't think I would have a problem no matter where I came in. You know, I, I would figure out something. I'm pretty scrappy. Right. <laughs> now, but when you say that you weren't a musician, how did that begin for you? Well, I mean, I came to New York in 1967, wanted to be an artist, and I also wrote poetry. And after, I, I, I just started writing more poetry and then uh, was shepherded by people like Allen Ginsberg and, and uh, William Burroughs and Gregory Corso, and they all read their poetry, so I wanted to read poetry. But I didn't want to be boring because I went to a lot of poetry readings and they were Snoresville, you know? They were like, <laughs> sorry, but really boring. So I just started like 
Do they have, any, do they have good wine? Do they have good <laughs> wine? I didn't even drink. You know, I don't do anything interesting, really. You don't? But, uh, I mean, I'll have a shot of tequila. Good night, everybody. <laughs> you don't no, have a I drug mean, problem? I'll, no, I never had a drug problem. Um, my, <laughs> I thought, I thought we were going to do at least 20 minutes on that. I have a drug problem. I was going to do my half. No, actually, I was such a sickly kid um, that, and my parents worked so hard to keep me alive that, you know, when I, when I came out into the world, the last thing I was going to do is fuck that up, you know? <laughs> I just, I'm not, I don't have a self-destructive vent, but also when I was a kid, my mother was a chain smoker, and she, I mean, real, true chain smoker. And when she ran out of cigarettes and she didn't have money, she would pace all night long. I'd get up at midnight and see my poor mom pacing because she didn't have a cigarette. And I thought then, I'm never going to be dependent on anything. Because I thought, what would happen if you got stranded on a desert island and you didn't have cigarettes? You'd, like, fall apart. So it was like an early lesson in... Uh, what I didn't You'd be want. You've doing a life. lot of pacing on a desert island. <laughs> you didn't have cigarettes. Probably 10, 20 years. You have of to pacing. grow tobacco. You have to grow and your then, own uh, cigarettes. But uh, I feel like somehow I didn't answer one of uh, some question. Oh, I know. It doesn't you're, matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want to do. How I wound up singing? Oh, I just wound up singing like to make up little, singing little songs a cappella between poems to make it a little more interesting, and then sort of rap in poems and. It was just uh, organic. Did it you just... copy that from somebody? You just did it on your own? You didn't see anybody else doing that? No, I mean, I saw, like, uh, beat poets or... I mean, just... I think of everybody that I was influenced by at that time in my life, Johnny Carson was the one. I just <laughs> thought, like... He didn't have know, a drug problem either. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Right. But, I mean, but just the fact that Johnny Carson... His, his, his ability to improvise or to get himself out of any situation, that was always what I was looking for. If I was on stage, got in a bad situation, find my way out of it. You grew up in South Jersey, and you're kind of tough the way you grew up. Your dad, what did your dad do for a living? He was, worked in a factory. And what did your mom do? She's a waitress. And, and how many kids in your family? Four. Four. How many boys, how many girls? Three girls, one boy. And I was the oldest. So. You're the oldest. Yeah. And uh, it was tough. Well, no, yeah, I mean, we, it was financially was tough. tough. We had yeah. a, a, it was, in those ways, very tough. But in another way, we had, it was very magical because I had really great siblings. I had a great imagination, read lot, hundreds of books. My parents, we knew that they had a lot of strife and stress, but... You know, it was just the world seemed so magical. It wasn't so bad for us. Yeah. Books were my salvation. Oh. And so I, I didn't think of things. The only bad thing was when I'd be hungry. I mean, truthfully, I liked to eat. I was really skinny and a real, I, I was always hungry. And that was my biggest You're problem. You were really skinny back then? Yeah. Huh. Really skinny. Yeah. What do you it's mean? <laughs> you don't believe me? I was. I really was. You were was. very skinny. People well, would think of you as being a very thin woman. <laughs> but, but, but you're saying that we, so, so there was, it was tough. Like, I remember I, I, got a, I wrote a memoir that's coming out in April, and I talk about that. Like, my dad was a school teacher, six kids, and they didn't have any money either. It was really, it was a lot, you know, a lot of stress, man, really tough. Well, you didn't have credit cards and stuff like that. I mean, it was all like, 
you had cash and you got, you know, if you didn't have money, you didn't eat. It wasn't yeah. like, a, you know, sometimes you could get, you know, like a, uh, you know, a little credit card at, at Sears or something, you know, but um, it was... Uh, well, like you said, you had to use your imagination and yeah. and, and reading. Was same for me. It was like such a huge thing. It was, you know, TV back then. People everything. don't realize who are young here. <laughs> like TV back then, you know, they'd show a TV uh, on TV. They'd show a movie on like NBC. They'd have like the Sunday night movie, and they'd show a movie that was you know you've everybody's seen a hundred times. You know, they'd say the Sound of Music <laughs> this Sunday. We'd all be like, oh my god! And we'd like run to the TV to watch the Sound of Music on TV, which you know they didn't have. Netflix, three and DVD. three channels that went off at like either ten o'clock yeah. or midnight, and uh, you know, and then uh, cartoons on Saturday. I I loved being a kid. It was awesome. And then when you uh, left home, where'd you go? New York. I left when I was twenty, and basically I left to get a job because in. Uh, South Jersey and Philadelphia, the New York shipyard closed down and there were like 30,000 jobs overnight were lost and there wasn't any work, no matter how low, a factory job, nothing, and there was no more work and I needed a job, so I went to New York City to get a job. And where'd you get a job? Um, in a bookstore. I got a, a series of bookstores until I really landed a great bookstore job in Scribner's bookstore, and I worked there for about five years. I think that really tells a lot about you. That really pretty much sums it up. You're home in Jersey. You can't get a job. You're starving. You go into New York to get a job. I thought you were going to say in a restaurant. Well, no, so I did. eat all you, the time. <laughs> Instead, you go to a bookstore. <laughs> but okay. A different kind of food. But no, you know what happened? My mother was a waitress, and she tried to give me a job at her counter, but I was so clumsy and such a daydreamer, and she fired me. And uh, <laughs> so then she was upset Tough that I was leaving home, in. but she, got, she let me take my white uniform and my wedgies. So the, the first day I get, I'm on Times Square, and of course Times Square was all different then, you know. And uh, I got a little a job immediately because they needed a waitress at a place, a little Italian place called Joe's um, on Times Square. And within like two hours, I dumped one of the, I had a giant tray, I tripped and the whole uh, tray of veal parmigianas uh, went on this woman's tweed suit. Not only was I fired, but my three hours pay went to her cleaning bill. So I went back to Port Authority, left the waitress uniform and the wedgies in the girl's bathroom and thought maybe somebody can use them. And uh, then I, looked around for a, a better job. How does art, poetry, music come into your life when you're in New York, when you're 20 years old? Well, first it was just getting a job. I didn't get a job the first or second day. I mean, I was sleeping in the subway, sleeping in uh, Central Park, sleeping at the, the cemetery in Flushing or Greenwood or wherever it was, and near where Herman Melville was buried. And... Uh, it took a little while, and truthfully... <laughs> but later on, I read the story about Moby Dick, but go ahead. Is this, I did, I read, it wasn't really until I met, I met Robert Maplethorpe, and uh, we met a couple of times, but I was in a, a bit of a jam because a, a grown-up asked me to, to go out to eat. He was probably 40, but I was like 20. To me, he seemed like, you know, he was a grown-up, you know. 
And uh, I, I was really afraid. My mother used to say, don't go out with a stranger because, you know, they just want one thing. And I thought, oh, I was so hungry. And he said he would take me to dinner. And he took me to the Empire State Building diner. And I remember to this day, he ordered, uh, we ordered, he ordered me swordfish, and it was $5. And I thought, he's going to want everything for $5. <laughs> and I was petrified. And so I, I ate the, I couldn't even eat it, and so I was so hungry. So the whole time you were eating, you were thinking, I'm going to eat, maybe I should leave now. Yep, exactly. And I'm going to run out that door, but all these potatoes are so good, I'll have just a couple more <laughs> potatoes, then I'm going right out that door, he'll never know. So we walked. But you didn't bolt. No, uh, I didn't know what to do. Then we walked. Dessert. We walked, uh, no, we didn't, we didn't have any dessert. We walked all the way down to... Uh, Tompkins Square Park, and we were sitting there, and then all of a sudden he said, uh, I have an apartment uh, right around here. Would, and he asked me if I wanted to come up. Did he say it like that, though, honestly? Yeah, it was really creepy. He actually I had like... I have an apartment right <laughs> he, had like, he had like a turtleneck, a white turtleneck, I remember, and a medallion. I mean, he was really <laughs> so you creepy. You went on a date with Austin Powers? I, that's so funny. No, he was supposed to be a science fiction writer, but... Uh, I was so, and, okay. and when he said that, I thought, oh my God, this is the moment, you know, and I, everything my mother ever told me for like 10 years of my life. And I was sitting there paralyzed, figuring out what to do. And I looked and I see Robert Maplethorpe coming, you know, up through, just coming, it's almost like a cloud parted. And here he comes with like long curly hair and a sheepskin vest and, you know, and his dungarees. And I had only met him once or twice. And Pratt. I, I didn't even know his name. Right. And I just met him sort of. And so I ran up to him and I said, uh, do you remember me? And he goes, yeah. And I said, will you pretend you're my boyfriend? And he says, okay. So I bring him to the science fiction guy and I said, this is my boyfriend. He's really mad. I got to go. Goodbye. And then I said to Robert, this is so stupid, but I did. I said, run. <laughs> And Robert and I ran. We ran. We ran. We ran away. <laughs> and uh, and now the guy in the turtleneck with the medallion on is the president-elect of the United States. <laughs> Boy, did you play your cards wrong. You know. And then my life began. Life began that night because Robert and I just roamed around. We roamed around the East Village and everywhere all night long till two in the morning, just talking away. And finally, almost simultaneously, we both said, do you have a place to stay? Neither one of us had anywhere to live. We didn't have any money. But uh, the difference is Robert had knew some kids at Pratt and he knew, he knew how to get the key to this one guy's apartment uh, where his art was stored. So we went there and we went to his place and he showed me all his drawings and what he was doing. And after that night, we became inseparable and that set us, at least me, on a path, you know, where of drawing and painting and evolving and writing poetry and a and new life. And you fell in love with him. Yeah, we've, we've, you were we've in love. yes. You were together we were for love. a long, long time. Yes, through, through many things, yeah. Well, I was going to get into that, actually. <laughs> but you're with him for a long, long time, and then things change for you as well in terms of your career. 
Well, I mean, at first, I mean, the thing is, is that I never cared about a career. I have to say, none of those things, um, being in a business, music business, career, money, what, what I always wanted, no matter how conceited it sounds, is I wanted to do something great. I wanted to write something as great as Pinocchio or The Scarlet Letter or, you know, just do something wonderful, write a wonderful book. I didn't really care about, and still don't, I don't care about having a career or any of that stuff. I do my work, and in the process, I've had some great successes. I've had things that have had me banned from the world. I've had, you know, I've, I've, I've been in trouble. I've done, you know, I've left it all behind. It's not important to me. What's always important to me is really just to do something good, to do something that's uh, enduring. So when you started to have success, was that something that was, because it was so unfamiliar to you, there are those people who, I'm not going to say the word failure, they're more comfortable in anonymity than they are being successful and famous because it's familiar. Did you find that when you were becoming famous as a musician? Because primarily you became famous as a musician, as a singer. Well, at first, in the beginning, in 1978, I had my first big success with the song I wrote with Bruce Springsteen, Because the Night... I thought it was, thank you. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was exciting to have a song on the radio. I didn't think of it in terms of success or failure. It was just really cool to be on the radio. And back then, you know, having a single and meant, you know, your records were in the window and, and you could, you know, you played bigger places and met more people. But by 1979, truthfully, I could see that success was to keep going, you, I, I was doing less work, less meaningful work, evolving less as a person and an artist, and just getting more successful. And I thought, that's, that's not why I w- was put on the planet. I wasn't put on the planet to you know, climb the ladder of success. I was here to do certain kind of work. And so um, I left. I left the music business in 79. You separated from uh, Maplethorpe when? What year? Well, Robert and I separated as a couple in like 72, but never as, we were just the same, only we weren't, you know, doing it anymore, you know. (laughs) But we didn't change how we were. We were always just the same. We were just, you know, had different physical partners. So we never quite really separated until I got married. And you, I think I read it in, in an interview where you said it was difficult for him to admit to his sexuality when he was first. Well, I, I think, it, it, you know, it's people, it was a different time. I mean, Robert was brought up Catholic. His mother wanted him to be an altar boy. His father wanted him to be in the military. And he wanted to be an artist, but he was suppressed that to try to at least please his father. And uh, Robert got a full scholarship. He was very smart. He got a full scholarship to Pratt, a military scholarship. But right before I met him, he just decided that that's not what he wanted. He wanted to be an artist. He didn't want to be in the military. He didn't want to be a commercial artist, which is what his father wanted him to do. And his... uh, um, his uh, scholarship was based on, on, on that pursuit. And 
in, in saying that he didn't want to do that, that he wanted to be an artist. His father sort of disowned him. He lost his scholarship, lost his dorm, lost his stipend, like overnight. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't uh, back down. He really, he really believed he was, he knew he was an artist and that's what he wanted to do. And that's at the moment we met. He was like, he had shed his family, his uh, career, um, any financial uh, aid that he had, and um, to, you know, to uh, devote himself to art. And I had left my family, you know, um, my home, and come to New York to pursue, to get a job, but also to pursue um, my path. And we met at a very perfect time. You know, you were with him and still connected to him, even when he was very sick and when he was, and when he died. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, I'm still connected with him. I still think about him every day and and, uh, the things that I learned from him or that we we did together inform the work that I do. I mean, we, we bonded so young through art. I mean, of course, you know, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We did all the things young people do. But I think that as, as he felt freer and freer as an artist and a human being, his nature, first he had to come out as an artist. Then the next thing that happened is he blossomed and felt his sexual nature. We had to weather that. We had to you know, try to navigate what this meant, what it meant to our relationship, what it meant. And, and it was difficult, and it took a few years because neither one of us wanted to part. But eventually, we had to part as boyfriend and girlfriend because he had to be who he needed to be. When did you meet your husband? You eventually got married? I met my family. husband in 1976 in Detroit, and I was on the road, and I met him in Detroit, and I saw him. It was, it's like a, it's really like a, a song. I saw him across a, a crowded room. He was just standing there in a blue overcoat. I didn't know who he was, and I thought, that's the boy I'm going to marry. I swear to you, that's true. How old were you at the time? I was about 76. I was about 28, 29 28, I don't know. Did you walk up and tell him that right oh, away? Oh, no, Did you, no. Did you say, I need no, to tell you something no, very important? No, not at all, but Lenny Kay actually introduced us, and he said, uh, Fred Smith, Patty Smith. We just looked at each other, and I don't know. And we finally, uh, um, we had a long-distance relationship. In fact, because the night, uh, we had a long-distant relationship, and neither one of us had a whole lot of money. And to make phone calls was expensive, long-distance calls. I always, to this day, I hear people, my boyfriend only called me three times today, and I think, Jesus. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I'd have to wait all week to get one phone call from from Fred. And um, actually, am, am I going off the course to... Uh, no, there is no course. There is no course, Yeah. You're my kind of guy. Yeah, come on, man. We're going I'm back your, to I'm your kind of passenger. Yeah. I'm your kind of passenger too, because I, I just flicked the autopilot about 30 minutes ago, man. We don't. 
We're not going anywhere <laughs> particular. Because I don't know how to drive and I have no sense of direction. I'm a really good passenger because I can never tell if anybody's lost. <laughs> you know, and I apply that to all, every part of life. But when you met your husband, and what did he do? Was he a musician? He's a mu he was a musician. He uh, played with the MC5. He was a master guitarist. He was really one of our great guitarists, and, uh, and uh, he's just such a beautiful man. You know, we just decided, you know, we, we wanted to evolve as human beings, and he wanted children, and we just, we just decided to withdraw from public life and really know each other, and when, when we had children, they would really know who we were, and, um, and so we did. For how long? till his, he passed away in the end of 94, so 16 years. So 16 years you go off the grid, I hate that phrase, but that's what you do. That's okay, doing. yeah. You go off the grid. Yes. And, and does, does what you do come like blowing out of you, like in like weird moments? Like are you like in the checkout line? <laughs> and you're like going, go, peas and carrots, peas <laughs> and carrots. Actually, they didn't peas. care who I was. In fact, because I had no driver's license, if I wanted to write a check, they always hassled me because I didn't have the right and idea. I'd license. have to bring my passport everywhere. So uh, that was Detroit. 16 but, years. What was it like? Did you paint? <laughs> I No, I didn't paint because um, it was just the way our living quarters were. I didn't really have the space to do something like that, but I wrote every day. I, I could have never written Just Kids or the books that I'm writing now had I not had 16 years of enforced discipline. Because I've always been very undisciplined, and then, unless I had a job or something, but then having uh, children, um, I, ha I had to learn to wake up at five in the morning, and from five to eight was my writing time. Everybody was asleep, it was my time. And it was really hard at first, but then after a while, I got in a groove, and I still write early in the morning. And I really learned how to develop my craft. And uh, it was hard because there's no cafes around. There was no bookstores, a lot of things. The biggest, the, the most hardest thing is in New York, you can walk out the door and get a cup of coffee in about two minutes, practically anywhere. But where I was, the closest thing was 7-Eleven, which was about, you know, half a mile away. So I'd have to, every Saturday, I'd walk to 7-Eleven, my cafe, get a glazed donut and a coffee, and I was, I was in town, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but I love my life. It wasn't easy because, you know, I had to do all the, we, we did everything. We didn't have nannies or housekeepers or even babysitters. We did everything. And I'm not the most adept at stuff, you know, so my poor kids, you know, their school uniforms and stuff, my daughter's little pleated, you know, jumper was like always a little jaggedy and <laughs> their blouses and their shirts were a little dingier than the other because I didn't like using bleach and things like that. But, but I, I love my kids. I love my husband, you know, and it was a lot of a certain amount of sacrifice and and, uh, you know, uh, but I, I, there was I never love a my talk life. about you, because I just find this so interesting. You know, the, the, was there much talk about you, like get back, getting back in there and getting back into your life? 
to make money as a breadwinner for everybody's bed. And you well, grew up in such a tough... Well, when home. we really, the, really needed... I always, I always feel like I got to work all the time. Well, when we childhood. really needed money, we lived so simply. I mean, we never went to Europe. We never went, you know, we drove anywhere um, that we went. When we really needed money in 86, uh, we did one record together, and uh, that kept us going. And, um, but it's just, you know, I, 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 I liked my life. I never, I didn't expect to be on the great stages of Europe. You know, to me it was really fantastic that I got the opportunity. I never thought I would do a record. I, in, but in doing so, I got to travel, which in, I never thought I would ever have the money to travel and go to Finland, <laughs> you know. But, uh, but I mean, all the places, I'm just joking. But I did get to go to Finland, <laughs> even though I had never dreamed of going to Finland. But I mean, I got to all the places. I saw Paris and Rome and Vienna and all these places um, because I had a band and sang and, and did records. But it wasn't, it wasn't my focus in life. It wasn't my great, great vision. And so when I didn't do it, I was grateful that I got the opportunity, but I wasn't mourning the situation that I wasn't doing it. You know, I wasn't missing the applause. It wasn't like a Judy Garland movie or something. I just, you know, I felt, you know, really happy writing, you know, watching my kids grow. I did what I needed to do. Are you glad happy. that you had the experience to be a mother? Oh, yeah. I lo my kids are awesome. And the funny thing is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say this because my kids know. I never wanted kids. I just wanted to be an artist. I didn't want to be, have kids. And I came from a big family, and I helped raise my siblings, and I just wanted to be free. And it was Fred who wanted children. And I loved him so much, and I thought, well, I can do that. You know, I... But I never expected to just love my kids so much and just love being a mother. And since Fred died when he was 45, um, you know, I have them. I have them. I, I see so much of him in them, not just in the way they look or certain gestures, but it, even in their music. The tones of my son's guitar, he'll be playing a guitar solo. He never heard his father play guitar because they were quite it's young. There. It's Fred's tones. Jesse at the piano. She is just his feel. And she never heard him play piano, but she has his feel. And it's it's awesome to to have them as individuals, but also how they magnify their father. Coming up, more from my live conversation with Patty Smith. Explore the Here's the Thing archives, where I talk with another musician, one who was transformed by the music of Patti Smith. She represented something other and something, to me, alien. And part of that was this, this um, uh, openness, this fluidity about sexuality that I think certainly resonated with me and with, with millions of other people who were questioning their sexuality or, or, or emerging into something that they weren't familiar with or something that wasn't, at the time, uh, quite accepted or acceptable. Take a listen to my conversation with REM frontman Michael Stipe at heresthething.org.
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Today, live from the Mayo Performing Arts Center in Morristown, New Jersey, where I sat down with musician and poet Patti Smith. Now, when you uh, was writing songs for you, uh, difficult and kind of laborious, or did they come to you or both? Well, I, I mean, uh, writing songs isn't my first vocation, and I, I, it's, I'm not as facile at writing songs as other things. Also, since I don't really, I only, I play a few chords on the guitar so I can figure out some things. But sometimes songs come, songs are so strange, sometimes they just come as a gift. I've woke up in the morning and there's a song there and I quick write it down. It just comes full with the music and the words. And then there's other songs that have taken three years to, you know, have a piece of music and, and write words. But it's, it's labor, songwriting, and there's a lot of responsibility um, responsibility to the uh, composer, because most of my songs, the music was written by a band member or Fred, and, uh, and, and so you, you want to uh, please them, but it also has to be something that I can sing. But the easiest, one of the easiest things was to write um, to Because the Night, because Bruce, I, I had a, a cassette with a, um, it was a demo, and I, I really didn't want to listen to it. You know, it was given to me by my producer, Jimmy Iovine, and he coaxed Bruce into letting me finish it. Bruce couldn't figure out. He was having trouble writing verses to the song. He had the chorus, and Jimmy gave it to me, and I didn't want to listen to it because I thought um, I wanted to write, I wanted my band to write their own songs, and... Uh, and Bruce is from like a different part of New Jersey than me, and uh, he's sort of in the middle, and I'm from South Jersey, and it's like, I really, I just didn't want, you know, a, a sort of a middle New Jersey. You didn't New want Jersey. Bruce Springsteen to pollute your song, in which sense. <laughs> Don't bring that middle Jersey shit into my music, No, I'm, I, no I'm from New Jersey, it's just I'm from like the cooler part of Jersey. Right. But I was, this is what I was saying before, but one night I was waiting, Jimmy had given me this tape when we were doing this album Easter, and every night Jimmy would say, hey, listen to the tape, did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? And I said, uh, not yet. And he'd call me up, did you listen to the tape? Did you listen to the tape? Uh, not yet. So, uh, you know, it was just sitting there in my little apartment on McDougal Street. And so anyway, Fred was supposed to call me, and it was like seven, and I got all ready. I look cool, and I'm sitting there, and the phone's sitting there, and I'm waiting for Fred to call. And seven goes by, 7.30, no Fred, you know, say eight o'clock, I'm pacing around. And, you know, I was like obsessive, you know, I wanted, you know, the phone call, and I couldn't, I was just pacing and pacing, couldn't figure out what to do with myself. And I noticed this, the darn tape, and I thought, listen to that darn tape. So I put it on my cassette machine and put it on, and I listened to it, and it's in my key, perfectly arranged, anthemic, has a really great chorus, and I thought, ugh, it's one of those darn hits. It's just, you know, (laughs) yeah. So I listened to it, and it was, you know, it was captivating. And I'm waiting for Fred and waiting for Fred. Finally, he calls me up like 11 o'clock at night. But when he called me, 
uh, because it took so long, um, I had finished all the lyrics to the song. And uh, that's why in the second verse it says, uh, let's see, have I doubt when I'm alone, love is a ring, the telephone. I was waiting for Fred to call. So, and uh, so I wrote the words and, uh, and, th- and thanks to Bruce, I had my, uh, my first hit. Yep. Um, <laughs> now, um, writing books when you did Us Kids and then M Train was quite a gap in between those two books, but was writing books difficult for you as well? Well, Just Kids was really difficult because I basically wrote fiction, and, uh, and even though it wasn't in poetry, and the day before, literally the day before Robert died, he asked me to, if I would write our story. And our story was something that we cherished. It was, he used to like me to tell him our story. Sometimes we didn't have enough food or we were hungry and we couldn't go anywhere. And he'd say, tell me our story. And so I would start like a little fairy tale, tell the story of how I came to New York and how we met and... So I promised him I would write it, having no idea how I would do that. And it took me a really long time because also so many things happened. My, uh, Fred passed away, then my brother passed away, and I, I had two young children. And so it took a long time for me to fulfill this promise. But all the discipline, all what I had learned in all those years in Michigan really taught me how to sustain writing. Finally, I got it done. And it was, it was so exhausting when I was done, I, I could hardly write another thing for a while. Two things I want to ask you, and then we're going to take some questions, I think, from the audience. But you seem like somebody, like I read interviews with you and I saw clips of you talking to people. And, and I think the one thing we have in common is an appreciation of people that you admire and people you worked with and that you liked. And, and I was wondering when you look back, I mean, you've had such a long career and you've worked around people who were these amazing, unique people. Uh, and during unique times, you know, in the 60s and the 70s and so forth. And if you could mention just one or two people who, when you look back now, people who you think, man, I can't believe I got to know that person and I got to hang out with that person. Well, I think that just having... Uh, Allen Ginsberg, William Burroughs, and Gregory Corso as uh, mentors uh, at a very young age. And they really did shepherd me. Um, and, I mean, Allen, speaking of, of activism and performance and, and uh, serving the people, and, uh, and William in, in, taught me so many other things, how to conduct myself, uh, how to protect my work, um, how to try to have a good name. I mean, they all had their, their advice for me. And, uh, and Gregory uh, was so irreverent, you know, just uh, no bullshit and uh, both, both a romantic poet and uh, completely unbridled. I just, I, I learned so much from these three men. They were so different and they were so unique and their work um, all set, did such great work. And um, when I look back, I just sort of went with the flow when I was a kid, you know. I just thought, you know, they were cool and, and they were so helpful. 
but when I, when I look back now, it's really with a sense of wonder that I came from truly such a rural area where, you know, there was a pig, you know, we lived in this little house and there was a field and then a, a big pig farm. Across the street was a peach orchard and down the road there was a little skating rink and up the road was a little armory where there were school where there were dances with a disc jockey like once a month and there was like nothing there and how i went from there and found these guys is uh you know magical it just, i can imagine your childhood like your brother sitting there going like it's saturday afternoon they're like what do you want to do and the other brother's like I don't know, you want to throw dirt bombs at the pig? <laughs> no, like, actually, nah. we would like... You want to go skating? <laughs> nah. You want to go get some peaches from the orchard and throw them at the pig? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Actually, we, we, I, I was taken to court when I was 11 because uh, <laughs> I still... We, we, my dad was on strike and there was like no food in the house. And my mother could make really good pie. So we snuck over to old man Baker's field and he had a peach orchard and they were on watch, my sister and brother, and I climbed up the tree and I, I was getting peaches and just filling up a basket. And old man Baker comes and I, uh, he comes after us with a salt rock and a gun. That's what we had. And uh, you know- yeah, yeah, shot yeah, us with a salt yeah, rock. Yeah, salt rock. And boy, a Bernie butt one would have. But uh, they got away, but he caught me. Then I had to go to court. He had a lawyer and he said, I, you know, I was a ringleader of a gang. He was up there saying <laughs> that I was a ringleader of a gang. I was there with like, so skinny with these long straggly braids and my little, you know, blue checkered dress sitting there like this. And like, he's talking about this ringleader, you know, that did thousands of dollars worth of damage yeah. and You're going on and on. And then they had me come up in front of, and when I had to walk up, and everyone looked at me, the whole courtyard burst out laughing. It's like Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. No, it's just like... When uh, I was a kid, we used to golf on a local golf course next door to our house. We'd sneak out in the summer at 7 o'clock, and all the golfers were gone, and we'd take a pitching wedge and a 7-iron and a putter, and we'd hit on this hole that was right near our house. And then eventually you'd hear them go, Get off of that green! And you hear, <laughs> boom! And you hear... All the salt, they'd shoot salt oh my, cartridges it's at It's hard, us. it's hard when that's, I mean, it doesn't, can't kill you or anything, but it is Bernie. Yeah, they used to shoot us with assault. Now, the last thing I want to ask you is, because I think a lot about this too. Do I have any it, scars on my butt? Is is it, <laughs> put it in the book, <laughs> the next book. Um, to talk to people, I, I, you know, a big, a piece of my book, not a big piece, but a, a, an important piece, is me talking to people, is talking to myself as a young person, to a young person who goes into the arts or goes into uh, theater specifically, but you really have to develop a muscle to not care what other people tell you about what you want to do if you have a really burning passion to do something, because life is so short I think people don't really learn growing up how to be happy and how to enjoy themselves enough in a healthy way, in a reasonable way. That's so nice, you know, because my, it, my father, I, I, he was a factory worker, but he was really, really intelligent, really intelligent. And once uh, I asked him, um, I think 
I don't know, I was probably in my early 20s, what is the greatest thing a person could strive for? And I imagined he would give me some lofty answer because he was reading Carl Jung and he was reading uh, Shakespeare and Aristotle and all these guys in the Bible. And he said, you know, the greatest thing to pursue is happiness. And it's just, when I was young, I thought, really? Yeah. And now, now I do, I, I do get it, you know, and it's like even in these times, in the, these times it seems like the, the most terrible of times, I still try to hold on to that and remember that, that no matter what, we have the right, the pursuit of happiness just is, is, our, is, a, is, is a right, we're born with that. We're gonna take some questions, where do we, uh, are you right here, your hand is raised? Patty, what women inspired you throughout your career? Well, that's a simple question. When I go all the way back, I could start with, I loved Madame Curie when I was little. I loved Louisa May Alcott. I loved Joan of Arc. I loved Ava Gardner. Peggy Ann Gardner. Peggy Ann Gardner in, in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. She was awesome. And, uh, and I loved Grace Slick, and I loved Joan Baez. And I love Nina Simone, and I love my daughter, and uh, there's a million women. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of, I mean, now lots of really great movie stars, you know, you have Emily Blunt, or Emma Blunt, or Emily Blunt, and Emma Stone, and, and Kristen Stewart, and, and all the girl actresses. I like them all, you know. I enjoy being a girl. And I enjoy, uh, I enjoy the great things that girls do, but um, I am partial to fellas. <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> Thank God for that. I've had a... I must say. Believe me, I've had a million... One a for million, my team. <laughs> we, 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 are, we have 50 hands up here. We're, we're trying to go boy-girl, boy-girl. Balcony. Um... You, did, you just sang at the Nobel Prize, and it was really just a beautiful, moving performance. Um, and I'm as nervous now as you were then, um, but, but I was thinking about singing that great Bob Dylan song, and I, I know from reading about Bob Dylan that um, Allen Ginsberg, that was the song where, where Allen Ginsberg started to say, this guy really has something. And I'm wondering if you connected uh, your, your friendship with Allen Ginsberg with the performance of that song, uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Well, it would have been a nice thought, but truthfully, I didn't, and I didn't really know that. Um, the thing that I connected, a small personal thing, is I do have a blue-eyed son, and so singing those words, where have you been, my blue-eyed son, takes me right to my blue-eyed son. Also, I heard it when I was 15 years old, and when I heard that song, I thought, this fella is a poet. So I, perhaps it's the song that brings those thoughts. It, it, um, it resonated with Allen Ginsberg, but it also re re resonated with me, uh, 
15-year-old schoolgirl. It was like a Rimbaud poem or something. But in, I chose the song because I thought he's winning the Nobel Prize for Literature. It was the first song I heard of his that I felt that this was a poet singing to us. So I went all the way back um, and chose, chose it from there. We got time for one more. We have somebody with the mic now. Hold on, please. Thank you so much. Uh, Ms. Smith, it's an honor to speak with you. As an artist and art educator, I've used Just Kids in my classroom to basically talk about an artist's journey and discovering your path. You always do an advice to a young artist. What ammunition would you have to help stockpile that we can continue to encourage positivity, creativity, and individuality? Well, you know, the advice that I have is always very simple, that you... You want to pursue life uh, as an artist. Um, Just I could go all the way back to when we first started talking about Robert Maplethorpe. He wanted to be an artist, and he had to sacrifice a lot to make that choice. He sacrificed all 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 his comforts, the support of his family, his scholarship, Um, He sacrificed all of that because he knew what he wanted. He had a vision. He felt he had a calling. And when you have that um, and and feel that you can't live without pursuing it, then you have to do everything that you can um, to magnify uh, the gift that you have. And it's going to cost you. You have to be willing to sacrifice you have to be willing uh, to work really hard. You have to be willing to perhaps go years or quite a long time without recognition, without acknowledgement. And you have to, um, in, in the face of all that, maintain your vision as vision. You know, being, being a real artist and maybe in, you know, some old-fashioned sense, the way I look at art, it is, it is like, it is a sacred quest. And uh, it doesn't have anything to do with fame and fortune. You can achieve fame and fortune in the pursuit of it because perhaps the stars are aligned, but that can't be your prime directive Your prime directive has to be to do something new, to give something uh, new to the canon of art, to give something new to the people, and uh, to do something great, to do something enduring, something inspiring, something that will take people somewhere they've never been taken. And you have to remember, you know, why you want to create. And so I just say, again, simply, hard work and sacrifice happily. Because if you can't sacrifice with joy, then it's meaningless. And if you sacrifice and you maintain your joy and, in, and your enthusiasm, and your curiosity and your ability to work hard, you'll achieve something. 
So that's what I got. We're going to do. We're going to do just one last one, only because I'm afraid you're going to hurt yourself if I don't call on you. Go right ahead. Patty, when you were starting your career, what musicians inspired you the most? Well, first of all, I have to say again, I never embarked on a career. So, you know, my road was so serendipitous that it's not really fair to call it a career. But the people that inspired me the most when I was young were... um, Eleanor Stieber, you know, uh, uh, Maria Callas, um, Coltrane, Nina Simone, Bob Dylan, of course, and Joan Baez, and, and then hearing Grace Slick sing White Rabbit. I mean, there's so many. Neil Young, we have so many. There's so many people to be inspired by. But uh, the animals, you know, they just go on and on. But... Uh, you know, if I had to distill it really down, Bob Dylan was really one of my greatest influences. Let's have a round of applause for Patti Smith. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing Comes from WNYC Studios. What do entrepreneurs, engineers, and ballerinas have in common? All of these careers have been inspired by STEM and kickstarted by the Regeneron Science Talent Search. Here's the thing supported by the Regeneron Science Talent Search, which recognizes and empowers our nation's most promising young scientists. These high school students are researching ideas that could solve society's most urgent challenges and launching careers that will change the world. Alumni have gone on to win Nobel Prizes, found important science and technology companies, and even win an Academy Award. Learn more about this year's Regeneron Science Talent Search and hear alumni stories at regeneronsts.com.